Well, you have found your way here for week two of a series that we're calling our core values. You know, I, I, I'm sure you, you've noticed this, but uh, the seasons are changing. Is anybody excited for fall? You know, I, I, I love having four seasons. I mean, that, that sounds kind of silly if you've lived here all your life, but we lived in Texas for 10 years, and we had, uh, we had one season, hot. And so I love having four seasons. I remember my first Christmas in Texas, I deep fried a turkey in shorts and flip-flops on Christmas Day in the backyard. And my wife has a picture of it, and every once in a while I come across that picture, and I'm just like, thank God for Pennsylvania. <laughs> like, I love four seasons. You know, certain things thrive in certain climates. Some of you are that way. <laughs> You're about to close up for a while. You're just gonna be like in this like, you know, heavy state until next spring. You know? But certain things thrive in certain climates. You know, uh, we've got some folks in the church. They're actually traveling this week. They do a lot of RVing, and they, they go down to Florida. There's some of those snowbirds every winter, and they send us a box of oranges, which I'm so grateful for. They send us some Florida oranges. Now, you can't grow oranges like that in Pennsylvania. The climate's not right. Certain things thrive in, in certain climates. My favorite coffee is Jamaican Blue Mountain Coffee. I experienced it firsthand there several years ago when I went on a missions trip uh, to the center island of Jamaica. The Blue Mountains, they just have the right climate that, that you can grow that coffee. And like anything, there's knockoffs. You know, there's other ones that are grown other places and they put a Blue Mountain label on it. But those that actually grow Blue Mountain coffee, there's an official seal. You know you're getting the real stuff. There's an official seal that goes on Blue Mountain coffee because it has to be grown, uh, grown at this place in this region. It's it's just right for that climate. And, and certain things thrive in certain climates. You know, there's two types of people I've heard in the world. There's those that are the thermometers, and there's the thermostats. There's those people that just rise or fall with the mercury of what's happening in the room. They just adjust. And then there's those people that go in there, and they set the atmosphere. And as a body of Christ, we're called to set the atmosphere. And so we are a thermostat. And what we're talking about in this series of our core values, these are some of the things that set the atmosphere for our church. Last week, we, we started out talking about a culture of honor. And, and I would love, more than anything, I would love for you later this month to get into one of our life groups because we're doing a six weeks life group series about our core values. I would love for you to get around a table or in, uh, sitting on a sofa in somebody's house and to have a conversation about creating a culture of honor in your home and in your relationships and in our community and what that looks like lived out in your life. I, I can't wait, in fact, my wife and I were talking about it this week. We're starting our life group on September 30th. We're gonna start that Sunday night. Now, it doesn't have to be Sunday night for your group, but we're gonna pass out all the information uh, next Sunday, we'll give all the resources for anybody that wants to launch a group. I'm starting mine on September 30th. We're going to just run six weeks straight. We're going to have a great time talking about these core values. But today, the second value that I want to talk about is outward focus. Can we all just say that together? Outward focus. That's what I want to talk about today. You know, I heard a question years ago. And it, it, it haunted me <laughs> because I've, I've been serving in ministry and doing church life for a, a long time and been in the church all my life. And this question, it was just so pointed 
It shook me. And the question was simply this. If your church closed its doors tomorrow, who would care? And if we're honest, I think a lot of churches would have to say nobody, like except for the people that are, you know, here, you know, on Sunday morning, except for the people that attend there, or maybe there's a few folks that have a a nostalgic feeling because they got married there or somebody in their family got buried there. But does the church even matter to the community at large? And I think the reason is because somewhere along the way, a lot of Christians decided that the church is something that we go to. It's a place that we go to, not a people that we're called to be. How many of you know that the church is not people? Maybe you didn't know that. Let me say that. The church is not not a building. I said it wrong. That's why you didn't say amen. I'm glad you're paying attention. I might have get by on the 11 o'clock, but you guys are sharp. You're up early. Wow, I'm impressed. I better stick to my notes today. I'm going to back up here. The church is not a building. It's people. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thanks for letting me know. (laughs) You know, it's an incredible people too, isn't it? I mean, it's a people that we're we're formed into a family. And the Bible says that what's so amazing about it, and I think sometimes we forget this, is that we weren't always a people and, and that we weren't born into this. This isn't a family you were born into. In fact, here's what the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to take you to the Gospels in a moment, but I just want you to see this verse. Chapter 2, verse 9 and 10 says this. It says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are God's special possession. That ought to make you feel good this morning. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. That's who we are and that's what we're called to do. But then look at the next verse. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We can't forget that. We didn't used to be a people, but we are now. Why? Because we've received mercy, because we came under the lordship of Jesus Christ, because we surrendered our life to him, and he didn't just call us to heaven, he called us to a home here on the earth, it's called the church. He put us in the family of God, and listen, because we believe that, because we can remember, each and every one of us that are, that are followers of Jesus, we can remember that we were not always a people, but now we are. We didn't always know mercy, but now we do. Because we understand that we have this conviction For anyone that comes through the doors of the church, we just simply believe you belong. We believe you belong. And the pushback might be, but you don't know me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. Yeah, but you belong. And we can say that with confidence because there was a time that we weren't a part of the family of God. There's a time, the Bible says in Ephesians 2, that you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Not by good works, not by church attendance. You've been brought near by the blood of Jesus. And so because we believe in the power of the blood of Jesus, we believe you belong. We just simply do. Outward focus says that we understand that we're being a part of a body and it is a gift. The Bible talks about in Matthew chapter five, this is actually Jesus' sermon on the mount. It's kind of the inauguration of his ministry. And he explains in that uh, chapter what the impact of the church should be on our community. 
He calls us salt and light, a city on a hill that can't be hidden. I, I was reading that this week in the message paraphrase, and I just want to read it's a familiar passage to many of you, but I want to read Matthew 5, 13 and 14 in the message translation. It says, let me tell you why you are here. You are here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. Isn't that great? If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it, he writes. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. So if we're the God flavoring of the earth, if we're the God flavor of the earth, if we're the, the colors of God's glory in the earth, then every community that has a church in it ought to be better because that church is there. I didn't just say the church services should be better. I said if, if the church, if the body of Christ, if the people of God are the God flavoring in the earth and the, the nuances of God's color in the earth, then that community ought to be better just because that church is there, whether they attend that church or not. Amen? I'm talking about outward focus. How, how do we lose our saltiness? How can a church be in a community and be irrelevant? How can a church not even matter to the people that live right down the street from it? I'll tell you how it happens. It happens when we turn inward. It happens when we begin to believe that this is really just all for us, that church is somewhere that I go to escape the chaos of the world that I live in. It's been crazy out there this week. All I want to do is just get around some folks like me. I don't want to deal with people's issues anymore. I just want to be with my church family. I just want to be with folks that get me, folks that like the music that I like, people that you know just, just can understand me, and people that I can talk to about my crazy coworkers, and they'll nod and say yes. And we turn inward, and the church becomes like a, almost like a Christian country club instead of a spiritual hospital where people can find healing. Outward focus means this, and I want you to see this definition on the screen. This is outward focus. It means we actively share in Christ's mission to reach those outside our church rather than remain mired in the self-focus of personal preferences and comfort. That's what it means. To me, to be outward focused means that I understand there's something in me that is going to draw inward. There's something in you too. I mean, we want what we want. Nobody has to teach you to be selfish. I mean, just go to the nursery today and watch. It's instinctive. No one has to teach you to be selfish. I mean, you know, if, if even my girls, they're, they're much older, but even, even now, if there's two cookies left in the drawer and they, went, they wanted a cookie, but they see there's only two left, they grab two because they want the last one. <laughs> right? Like something nice about getting the last one, I guess. I don't know. We're, we're selfish by nature, and we all have this tendency to turn inward. But we don't want to remain mired in the self-focus of personal preferences and comfort. So we're intentional about reaching outward. To those outside of our church, I want you to go with me to Luke chapter 15. This is a very uh, familiar passage to 
a lot of people because one of the most famous stories, parables that Jesus ever told is in this text. So we actually preached a message on this last fall. We're not going to dive incredibly deep into this, but I just want you to see a few things. This is the chapter, Luke 15. It's the chapter of lost things because Jesus tells three stories. He tells a parable of lost sheep. He tells a a story of a lost coin, and then he tells a story about a lost son. And and there's a verse in this text. Well, really, all of this chapter, what it communicates to us is God's heart for the lost. It, It communicates God's outward focus. And it also tells us what the church ought to be like, where our focus and where our hearts should be. That there's one verse that is really, really important, and if you're excited about getting into the parable, you can miss this verse, but I want to highlight it today. It's verse three. It says this, then Jesus told them this parable. Now, that's important because it gives us context. There's a reason that Jesus is going to tell you about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son, and the reason is in the first two verses, so let's start at the top. Luke 15, verse 1. It says, and here's the reason he's going to tell the stories. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. The tax collectors and the sinners were were the, the definition of an outsider when it came to to the church, when it came to religious culture. Those were the people that they couldn't, they couldn't believe that Jesus would welcome them and sit and eat with them. And when they muttered under their breath, we can't believe he's doing this, it says in verse three, then Jesus told them this parable. Not only was Jesus an incredible storyteller, he had an impeccable timing. He he didn't just say the right thing. He said the right thing in the right moment. And don't you want God to do that for you today? To not just say something good, but say exactly what I need to hear. And so God, uh, Jesus begins to to tell them these stories. And the first one is about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and he realizes one of them is gone. Look at verse four with me in that story. It says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Now, now what's funny is we've kind of turned this moment into like this incredible revelatory moment, like, wow, he leaves the 99. He goes after the one. But Jesus isn't being revelatory. He's being rational. Like, look at the verse. He goes, doesn't he go after? I mean, if this is your sheep, I mean, if this is your profession and you're missing one, don't you go after it? Like, that's what he's just trying to say, hey, let's get on the same page here. You know, it's kind of like if I said, uh, aren't you glad God got you up this morning? Say amen. Like, yeah, we can all jump on board with that. Glad I got up this morning. Like, that's not, that's not a tough question. I can get an easy amen there. Jesus is trying to pull everybody in. So he says, if he loses one, doesn't he go out after it? Yeah, everybody's on board there. Yeah, he goes out and he looks for it. And then he tells the story about the the woman who loses one of her 10 silver coins. Now, this isn't just like she lost a quarter or some pocket change. Uh, The women in this time would wear this necklace that was made of 10 
silver coins, and oftentimes they would even wear it on their wedding day. It was special, and to lose one out of the 10 coins, it's not a full set anymore. And so Jesus says in verse eight, he says, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? Of course she does. That's what he's saying. This is the heart of God. He's saying this is what God is like. This is the Father's heart. Here you are saying, I can't believe that you would spend time with tax collectors and sinners and swindlers. And, and Jesus is saying, let me just tell you what God is like. If he's missing one, he goes after it. Then he tells them an even more pointed story, and that's the most, the most famous one. It's the, the parable of the prodigal son. It's the lost son, and he didn't just get misplaced. The story goes that he rebelled. He took his share of his father's inheritance, and he ran off, and he spent it on wild living until he was broke. And as soon as the money ran out, all of his friends abandoned him, and that son found himself literally sleeping in a pig pen and dreaming about how good he had it back at his father's house. And he begins to think, I wonder if I could go back. I wonder if my father would let me back in the house. No, there's no way. I mean, I've blown, I've blown it. There is no way that, there's no way that he would ever call me a son. There's a lot of people that feel that way. But he comes to this conclusion. You know what, if I could just be a servant, that's what I'll do. I'll go back to my father's house and I'll just ask him if I can be one of the servants because man, even the servants in my dad's house live better than I'm living. And so he's, he's rationalizing what he's going to do, and, and he, he gets his speech together. Here's what I'm going to say to my dad when I see him. I'm going to apologize. I'm going to grovel at his feet. I'm going to ask if I could just have a bed in the corner, if I could work all day and maybe pay back what I owe him, if I could be a servant. And he has all of this played out in his mind as he makes his long journey down that dusty road. And the Bible says this in that story. Look with me in verse 20. Right in the middle of that story, now the son is moving towards the father's house. It says he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Now remember, Jesus is telling these religious people, this is what God is like. He's the one who waits on the front porch every night, just hoping this will be the day that his son comes home, that his daughter comes home. And what does he do? He doesn't stand there shaking his finger at him. He doesn't have a scowl on his face. No, he comes running. He throws his arms around them. He embraces them. He welcomes them back in. Jesus is saying, this is the heart of the father. And this is what the church ought to be like. Let me just tell you, as a church, because I'm talking today in this series about our core values, and while these are absolutely practical, and I'm going to show you some of the ways for us as a church, they ought to be implicit values in your own life, whether you're a part of this church or any church. I believe these things are important, that we push back from an inward, self-centered focus, and that we embrace an outward focus. And realize that the purpose that we're still on this earth is for the purposes of God, for the expansion of his kingdom. And so as a church, practically speaking, for us, we expect prodigal sons and daughters to find their way back to the father's house through our doors every Sunday. You don't have to go here too long to recognize a pattern. At some point every Sunday, I'm going to give people a chance 
to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It's not because I think you lost your salvation every week. (laughs) For all you church members, it's not that I think you're that terrible of a Christian that you probably need to get saved every Sunday. No, it's not why we do it. It's because I'm convinced that there are prodigal sons and daughters that are waking up to their own pig pen every week and they realize if I can just get back to the Father's house, maybe my life could be better. And we anticipate them coming through our doors to find his house. So we do things to adjust the climate, the thermostat. We do things as a church to keep it from becoming inward focused and all about us so that new people will know that not only are they welcome to come and be a part of this, but we actually were expecting them. We actually anticipated their arrival. In fact, we pray for, we witness to, we invite, we expect lost people to come and be a part of our church services. You know, you, you, you act differently when you have guests coming over, don't you? I mean, your routine changes. Like, I, I, moment of confession, right now, I have a pile of stuff sitting on the island in my kitchen that my wife would love for it to not be there. It's my pile. I don't know why I leave it there. It's just there. Every few days or weeks, I sort through it. It disappears. The next day, I start another pile. It's organized chaos. I know that pile. But she would love for me to, to, now, now there's one time when I'm motivated to clear the pile, when we have guests coming over, right? Because it looks bad. I know it looks bad, but it's my house. It doesn't bother me. Come on, guys, help me out. Am I all by myself here? Thank you, Steve, for your honesty, man. Help a brother out here. You know, but when guests are coming over... You act differently, right? You, 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 you tidy up. You, you straighten the house. We expect people to be here on Sundays that have never been here before. So it's not enough to just go, ah, well, we all know each other. I mean, you know. No, we want to we start on time. We want to start when we said we were going to start. We have greeters that are standing at the door. And yes, we want to welcome all of our church family because everybody loves to be welcomed in the house of God. But first-time guests, they're, they're not... You know, what they're, you know what they want to know? Where's the bathroom? Like, like that's what they want to know. So we have like hosts that are out there and they're serving coffee and, and refreshments and, and, and all of our volunteers, they wear these lanyards. And I know some of you love the lanyards so much. You're like, why do I have to wear the lanyard? It's because somebody can approach you that doesn't know the way around here and they can figure out what needs to happen. And so, so we identify ourselves as hospitable. Why? Because we just anticipate, we have an outward focus. We're not going to just let this become about us. That's why every time we bring our kids to the kids' ministry, they have to be checked in. Why do you have to check my kid? You've known my kid all their life. Like, you know my kid sleeps over at your house. Why do I have to check my kid in? Because there might be somebody in line behind you that doesn't know you or me or your, your kid, and they know that there's a process in place. There's security measures here that all these kids are accounted for, including the first-time guest kid. And so, so my girls, they, they get the orange sticker on their back every Sunday. They get checked in just like everybody else's kid. Why? Because we're outward focused. Because I can, I can tolerate some of those inconveniences for the sake of somebody else coming near that's far. So that's the heart. We, we do these things because we expect new people to come. Now, let me just take that analogy a little bit farther. Because truth be told, and I shared the verse with you earlier, that through the blood of Jesus, those who were far away have come near. We don't just expect visitors because visitors 
visit for a while and then they leave. That's not our hope. We don't go out of our way for visitors. We believe that you can come into this church and you can receive the gospel of Jesus Christ and your life can be changed. And according to Jesus in John 3, you are born again. You have a new life in Jesus. You're born again, which means you are now a baby in Christ Jesus. Maybe you never grew up in church. Maybe you didn't know anything about church, but now this is new and you're like, wow, I'm a part of the family. And I can tell you, I can remember so clearly what it was like 16 years ago when my wife and I started preparing our home, not for guests, but to bring home a baby. When we started preparing our house for our first daughter, boy, we started buying stuff that I didn't even know what it was or what it was for. We started buying things. We, we were attentive to, to safety measures that we weren't even concerned about before. And we had to make room. I mean, I had this really cool game room in my early 20s. It's awesome. I had my drum set set up in there. I had a keyboard in there. I had a, a TV. And I, I don't even remember what game system it was back then. It was probably like a Nintendo 64 or something. But it was old school. But it was awesome. It's like my own little man cave. I lost that. <laughs> I lost that real quick because we had, we had to get ready to bring a baby into the family. That's what outward focus does. Outward focus says, you know what? We're going to be attentive that other people are coming. How many of you could testify that parenthood is a crash course in selflessness? <laughs> right? Yeah. Amen? And, and that's, that's what we, some of you need to see. You need to see your church that way. God's called you to be fathers and mothers in the faith whether you have biological children or not. If you've been saved for five days, you could be leading somebody that just got saved yesterday. Yeah. And so we ought, to, we ought to see it in that capacity. And, and then in Luke 15, at, at the end, Jesus, he gets really explicit with his audience because uh, he begins to talk about the older brother. At the beginning of the story of the lost son, there was two sons, and it was the younger one that took his inheritance and ran away and, and, and squandered it, and now he's come back, and the father has embraced him, and the father has thrown a party and slaughtered the fattened calf and put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet, and everybody's celebrating, and in the middle of the party, he recognizes that the older brother is not there. And, and here's the, the, just the, the mastery of Jesus' teaching. Because remember, he's trying to tell religious people what God is like and what the church ought to be like. And his audience says, I can't believe that you would hang out with those sinful people. I can't believe that you would let them come and eat and listen to your teaching. And so Jesus begins to talk about the older brother. And the conversation goes like this down in Matt, uh, Luke 15, verse 31 and 32. The older brother is... He's throwing a pity party. And the reason he's throwing a pity party is because the party inside the house is not for him. He thought it was supposed to be about him. That's the message. I thought it was supposed to be about me. And now I'm outside. I'm not coming to your party. And so the father goes outside in verse 31. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. Listen to this now. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead. He's alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. I love that. The father says, look, we have to celebrate this. Don't forget what's happening here, son. This is not taking away from anything that you have, but the reality is your son was dead. 
I mean, he was dead to us. He had no relationship with the Father. Now he's alive again. We have to celebrate. Can I just say, you know, October 7th, I've already mentioned it earlier in the service, but New Life Sunday is October 7th. It ought to be 100% attendance Sunday. I mean, like every member in the church ought to make it a priority to be at church on New Life Sunday. Why? Because we had to celebrate. Because people who were dead are now alive. And in every one of these stories, we see that theme. That the shepherd comes back and he tells all the other shepherds, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. And the woman finds the coin and she tells all of her neighbors, rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. And here's the father telling the religious son, we have to celebrate. Rejoice with me because your brother who was dead is now alive. He was lost and now he's found. Could you grab one of those chairs for me? I was thinking about this this week. You know, a lot of times we, we, approach, we approach church like the theater. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, grab, grab the other one too. A lot of times we do this. We, we walk into church and we look for a seat like we do in the movies. If you can find a seat, thanks. If you can find a seat that's got a great view, but not too close, that's good. And you, you, don't want, you, you don't want to be hemmed in. You know, you want a seat like where, in case you have to use the bathroom or, you know, get, get an exit, you, you can get out quick. And if you can find a seat that has some space next to it, like, oh, you're winning now. <laughs> All day. And, and now at the movies, if you find that seat, I mean, that's good. If there's an empty seat next to you at the movie, it means somebody else saved $30 that you just spent on overpriced (laughs) popcorn and refreshments. But in the church, that empty seat actually means something. Because the empty seat means somebody's waking up this morning and they're not finding joy. The empty seat means somebody is is waking up again this morning, and they're not finding peace. The the empty seat in the church is different because the empty seat says to me that there's somebody, there's somebody that that is going to go through another weekend searching for answers, and they're not finding them because Jesus is the answer. He is the way. He's the truth and the life. He's the only way to get to God. See, the empty seat is not elbow room. The empty seat is a coworker that hasn't received the invitation yet. It's a family member. It's a friend. And as as you look at God's heart according to Jesus, you have to understand that God's heart beats for the empty seat. I mean, he loves your worship. He wants you to be stirred and and guided and directed by his word. He wants that for you. But his heart beats for the empty seats. Jesus said it like this in Luke 19.10. He said, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. That's the heart. It's not the healthy who need a physician. It's the sick. 
And he said, this is, this is the heart of God. That there's, there's still room in my house. He wants his house to be full. There's still room in this house. You know, I was studying this week and I actually referenced uh, some notes that I had preached five years ago here. I hadn't looked at it in probably five years. And, and I pulled it up and I was talking about God's heart for the lost. And I had even wrote in my notes, and I'm sure I said it from the platform. I said, God wants to fill this place. Not just once, twice. I can see today two services happening here. That's what I said here five years ago. I'm, that's not because I'm prophetic. It's just because I know the heart of God. Amen. At what point are we satisfied? How much elbow room do we need? How much space do we need? And how easy is it for us to, to become inward in our thinking? See, the first century got it. I mean, they, they, they did. They understood it. In fact, I got a little bit excited when uh, Peter shared the story in Acts chapter 3 with you earlier about Peter and John, because what happened uh, as a result of that story of them uh, working that miracle is, and preaching the gospel in Jesus' name is they were thrown in jail. They spent a night in jail. And Acts chapter four tells us what happened after they got out of jail. And it's a record of the first prayer meeting in the church. First prayer meeting in the church. What do you think they prayed for? I mean, Peter and John just spent a night in jail for preaching the resurrection that we can have through Jesus. They get out of prison and they go to the house where the church is meeting. Look at Acts chapter four, verse 23 and 24. It says, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So they just began with praise. But what do you think they asked for? I mean, after just being persecuted for preaching the name of Jesus, what do you think they were gonna pray for? Protection from their enemies, maybe? Maybe they would pray for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. Maybe they would pray in this moment for a blessing. God, would you just bless us? No, no, no. They didn't pray for any of those things. Look at verse 29. It says, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Boldness. Can you imagine that? I mean, boldness is what they got thrown in prison for. You'd think they would pray for better timing <laughs> or a more conducive audience or a new strategy for witnessing. No, give us more boldness. That's what they wanted. And then look at the next part of their prayer. And stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They're asking for healing, not for themselves. Oh, God help us. We just struggled. We were in prison. No, they were asking for healings for other people. In other words, they were praying this. They were saying, God, do stuff that draws lost people to us so that we can point them to you. That was their heart. And truth be told, that's the only way they knew how to do church. That was what they learned on day one, the birthday of the church, Acts chapter two. You remember it? Acts 2, 1, it says, on the day of Pentecost, they were all together in one place. They were meeting. They were praying. 
And then the Bible says the, the Holy Spirit descended upon them. It was manifest with the sound of mighty rushing wind and tongues of fire that set upon all of them. So they're all filled with the Holy Spirit in the upper room. And then what happened? They have a three-hour worship service? No. Did they have a Bible study? No. Did they have a prayer meeting? Nope. In fact, those are all the things that they did before the Holy Spirit came. But when the Holy Spirit came, the church left the building. They left the building. They went out and they began to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to lost and hurting and broken people. It's the only way they knew how to do church. It's what the church was for. Outward focus. Not a bless me club. We have to refuse church to let this become nothing more than a place that we go to retreat from a chaotic world. You can have that place. It's called your prayer closet. You can step into God's presence so quickly with the mention of his name. And we need that. And thank God for Christian relationships. And thank God that there are times where we can come together and build each other up and encourage one another. But when everything that the church is becomes about our needs and our wants and, and our desires. You may not see the outward signs, but I can assure you that's a church that's on its deathbed. It's only a matter of time. Because that's not what the Holy Spirit came for. The church isn't a place that we go. It's a people that we're called to be. And, and Jesus said, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing. Jesus said at another place, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is supposed to be on the front lines. The church is supposed to be rattling the gates of the kingdom of hell. Outward focus. We actively share in Christ's mission to reach those that are outside our church rather than remain mired in the self focus of personal preferences and comfort. And I'm so glad we have one of our missionaries here today because that includes the nations. It means the nations. But it also means the neighbors. And it's that impulse that he talked about that we have to be responsive to. The impulse might call you to foreign soil it might call you to just go across the street, but it's calling you. That's what the Holy Spirit does. So I want to pray for the church today. I want to pray that we would respond to the leading of the Holy Spirit. We're going to bow our heads and we're going to close our eyes and we're going to just take a moment to kind of focus in. I don't even want to be the distraction to you this moment. I just want you to listen for the voice of the Lord. Maybe you're here today and you're praying with us, but you don't have a relationship with Jesus. This is your moment. This can be your moment. In fact, we've got men and women that are eagerly waiting for me to release them from their seat to come and stand in this altar because at the end of this service, we wanna give you an invitation to come and pray. We want this to be the house where you experience the Father's love. And if you need Jesus today, to save you, 
to forgive you, to bring you back, put the ring on your finger, the robe on your shoulders to call you son, to call you daughter. I want to invite you to just respond. Just say yes. Just say yes. One yes can begin the journey back. If that's you today and you don't know Jesus, you don't have a relationship with him, our heads are bowed. This is between you and God today, but I'm asking you to take a step of faith right where you sit. If that's you and you say, I want to say yes to Jesus, would you just lift up a hand towards heaven? Just say, that's me. I'm saying yes. Raise your hand because you believe Jesus is the answer. And today you're saying, yes, God. Yes, God. Thank you. Thank you. Praise God. Anyone else? You just say, this, this is me today. I want to ask if you would. Thank you for raising your hand. Thank you for being honest with God. Everyone in this room, could we stand together? If you just raise your hand, I'm about to pray a prayer. And while I pray that prayer, I want to invite you to do something. Would you just step out from where you are? Would you find a place at this altar? Just like that prodigal son who just got up one day and said, this is the day, enough is enough. I mean, I don't know what the future holds, but I'm going back to my father's house. Well, you know what the future holds. We sang about it today. He's good. He's good. He's the king of your heart. He loves you. And while I pray this prayer, I want to invite you to come and to let somebody pray for you before you leave today. Maybe you're here and, and the Lord is speaking to your heart. You've been serving the Lord for a long time, but you've allowed your faith to just be your faith. It's all inward. And God's calling you to, to more. I want to invite you. I said it last week. I'll say it again. The altar is not just a place for the lost to be saved. It's a place for the followers of Christ to close the gap, to come near wholeheartedly, to come near to God. So we're going to just open these altars in these closing moments. And I want to invite anyone and everyone that would to just come and seek the face of Jesus. Father, thank you so much for this word that you've spoken to us, Lord. God, thank you that you're calling us to be an outward-focused church. You're calling us, Lord, to make sure that the light burns bright in the city on a hill. You're calling us to make sure that we don't lose the, the God flavoring in this community. As long as we're here, this community is going to be better because we're going to serve it. We're going to love this community. We're going to reach out to our coworkers, to our neighbors, to our friends. That's why we're still here. That's why you sent your Holy Spirit. God, break our hearts today for what breaks yours. Help us to realize today that your heart beats for the empty seats, that we can never be satisfied and, and set back and rest on the fact that, wow, it looks like we've built a pretty good church here. Looks like we're having good services. There's good fellowship opportunities. There's good friendships. God, help us to be painfully aware of those who are far from God and to be compelled by your spirit to go out to the highways and the byways and to compel the lost to come in so that your house can be full. God, thank you for your word today. Thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name. Come on, let's just take a moment right now where you're standing. Let's just worship him. Would you just consecrate your heart to him?